Duncan. James, how are, how are you? I'm well. Are you are you happy, Duncan? Are you a happy Duncan? Uh, like always, I'm a bit happy, sometimes a bit frustrated and sometimes a bit sad, but generally more happy than the other ones. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. And more so to the point, something we'll be talking about today. Indeed. And that's exciting. All right. So uh, for everybody listening, welcome to Cloud Streaks, a podcast where Duncan and I like to talk about interesting topics and ideas. So I'm James, and Duncan and I have been friends now for over 30 years, which is quite scary. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of, you know, identified myself as uh, I've come to terms with being a 30-year-old, but now realizing that I've actually had a relationship with another human being, <laughs> not my family member, is also, it's just, yeah, it's humbling. So we've come to realize that we, we love a good banter, and so we decided to share our pleasantries with uh, all of you. Wonderful. Um, so we basically find an article or a blog or an interview or something that we find interesting, and then we're going to discuss it. Um, today, the one we're talking about is written by Darius Favot, or Faro. It's French, so I'm sorry, I just butchered that big time. It's called 21 Most Important Questions of Your Life. There will be a link to this in the podcast description. Um, I'm just going to read the introduction so you get a bit of an understanding of what this is about. Uh, one of the most important lessons I've learned from reading books, interviewing smart people and having conversations with my mentors is that questions are more important than answers. But that goes against everything you learn in school where you're rewarded for the quality of your answers. However, that's not what you should judge a person on. Instead, look at the quality of a person's questions. Like Voltaire famously said, judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. And one of my friends who's a consultant at one of the big three management consultancies once told me, my job is to be ignorant. He was referring to Peter Drucker, arguably one of the greatest management consultants of all time, who said, my greatest strength as a consultant is to be ignorant and ask a few questions. The right question at the right time can spark the right answers that change your life. I've experienced that myself over the last few years, and I've formed a habit of asking myself questions all the time. In this article, I wanted to share with you 21 questions across four areas that have the potential to change everything you do. Uh, that's the introduction. James was going to provide with context about this, I believe. Uh, yes, yeah, so what I really like about this is the uh, the author is, is uh, to me, quite clear in that he's talking about what we should be trying to do is not focus on the answer, not focus on how can we uh, get the to the right point or how can we find uh, the solution to a problem, but how can we level up or how can we get better at asking questions? Uh, so, you know, this takes me straight back to my university days when I was doing Philosophy 101. Uh, and the reason why it resonated so well with me was that they spoke about the, the principle of philosophy is not knowing the right answer. It's about knowing what the right question you should be asking. So this is, this is one that I find uh, you know, quite exciting and uh, I'm really happy to get on board with. So should we jump in? Um, Let's jump in. Cool. So I don't think anyone's purporting that these are the definitive questions and that at the end of this you'll know, but hopefully James and I discussing our thoughts on this will give you some insight. So I'm going to begin. The first question is, am I happy? Mm. Um, oh, well, you've already covered this. 20-year-old <laughs> um, Duncan, I'm 33, literally used to just ask myself, which of these two options will make me happier if I ever had a conundrum? And the answer was obviously often pretty clear. I could confuse myself by any other number of factors, but which one made me happier was pretty clear. 
But then 25-year-old Duncan had come to believe that just thinking about my own personal happiness might be a pretty selfish way to live. Um, and I'd switched the question to be, how can I help others? And I actually got worried about whether or not it made me happy and that I would therefore focus on myself versus others. And so I actively tried to disregard any thoughts about whether I would be happy or not and focus entirely on helping others. Um, but now 33-year-old Duncan thinks the answer is a bit of column A, a bit of column B. I want to help others, but also be happy. If I'm happy, I'll do a better job at helping others. And it is better for longevity. Um, so for me, am I happy? Yes. Um, net, net, there's always good days and bad days. Um, and I think I'm the happiest I've ever been. And this is because I think I help others more, but I enjoy helping others more. Um, whereas before I kind of worried so much about helping others that I didn't enjoy it enough. There we go. So Duncan, I think you off the bat have already uh, leveled up on, on this question because uh, you, know, you really helped describe what it is that you think makes you happy as well. Uh, so I will try and do the same. Uh, so most recently, so since becoming a parent, my baseline happiness, I would say, has significantly increased by probably a factor of five to ten. Should we just jump in really quickly, just for everyone? James has two wonderful little girls. Uh, one, three, Izzy, and one, zero. I love how you can be zero, Chloe. Uh, uh, and four I'm, months, four uh, and a half months now. Yeah, I know, but you can still be zero, effectively, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, I am single, and happily single, I should say. Yeah, well, and Duncan also has a baby. His name is Adrolo, as he <laughs> calls it. Yeah, that's his company, yeah. But it's which not is, a physical human baby. fodder for another entire podcast conversation, us comparing our respective children and yeah. how happy they make up. Eddie's, any, anyway, back to my happiness cadence uh, or levels. Um, so 20 years or 15 years ago, I would actually say my happiness was a lot more closely aligned with, uh, you know, hedonism or more hedonistic uh, experiences or exploits. So I was just interested in having fun going out activities. And I would think to myself that this was what it is, what it means to be happy by having fun and engaging experiences, but not actually being introspective into understanding how I actually felt. Uh, fast forward to when I was 25, I was pretty much in the honeymoon phase of my then relationship with my now wife. So it was a period of euphoria for me, I would definitely say, but that was blissful happiness. Whereas now I have a much more deeper level of feeling happy. And that is uh, based on the relationship I have with my family, namely my two little uh, angels or little girls. Uh, but that, 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 that's what, you know, to me having, uh, you know, identified myself as a parent, as someone who uh, gets to raise or have the honor of raising these two children makes me happier than anything else I've ever, ever experienced. Okay, so just to wrap the question, are you happy now, James? I am very happy now, Duncan, thank you. Okay, um, James talked about something interesting there, which is like what I could have referred to as high watermark happiness or relativism. Um, so similar to James, 20-year-old Duncan's happiness came from hedonistic things like playing video games or, frankly, going out and getting drunk. Um, I'm not saying that those things didn't make me happy, but now I have found many more activities that give it a lot more satisfaction, a lot more meaning than those things. And I pretty much don't play video games at all anymore. And 
the, the appeal of going and you know, getting drunk was, was strong for a 20 year old dog and, and now doesn't really factor that much. Not saying that they're not, you know, still didn't have positive, but there's much these I've found new things. And for James, I think part of that is his family. But for me, I've found that it's possible to have significant meaning in work, significant mm. satisfaction and happiness that comes from this. Mm. And so I, I think that's what you're saying. Is that fair, James, that your ability or your understanding of happiness has changed and your high watermark has gone up significantly? Uh, yes, I agree. You also left out offensive hairstyles there. <laughs> I think that was a, a, a big part of your uh, life at 20. But one of the other observations I have is, um, and you know, whether we define this as a distinguishing feature between you and I, but by having, uh, for me, by having children, it takes me back to those years, or I'll just say childhood. Um, and it's really, I'm trying to make sure I put this into uh, legible terms, but it makes what was made, what it gives me perspective on what made me happy back then as an adult. So when you're a child, you know, you are exploring, you're learning, the world is an exciting place. Uh, but you don't have purpose because you can't have that yet when you, you know, don't know enough about yourself. But be able, being able to see that as an adult is an entirely new perspective. So it's like you get both. You get to have this exciting sense of wonder while at the same time you have enough awareness to be able to reflect on that. So that, to me, um, is how I feel like I've transcended or achieved the new, new level of happiness. That's a really, really good articulation. I like that, James. Um, I would say, I, I know perhaps some people will be annoyed at me comparing having children to having a business. <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I honestly feel that same sense of wonder here. Um, for me, school was not interesting. Um, while I was learning maths, English, you know, chemistry, I didn't really find interesting at all. And university was the same. And so mm. I had no wonder through what I was doing from the application. Yes, having time with friends and other things was good, but I now am able to find wonder through work. And this was something that I just had no concept of at all. Um, and this is one of the reasons why my high watermark is significantly different for now 33-year-old Duncan than it was 20-year-old Duncan. Um, and so I think that it's possible to get, you know, meaning and happiness in lots of different places. Mm. Um, one thing before we sort of jump on, I thought I'd just ask James, they talk about people being happy, sad, but sometimes the people who are the happiest are also the saddest. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Okay. Um, so that is something um, I think is very much ties into the, the depths of how someone can be uh, sustainably happy over their lifetime. So, um, to try and address it through a more popular uh, lens. So there's the positive movement and the positive movement kind of just stipulates people just focus on being positive all the time. Uh, and then now people are now coming out and saying, that's actually not healthy. You should also, it's okay to be sad. And so Duncan, I'm going to try and answer your question now. Um, I think it, being sad is part of being happy. I think you need to have both emotions in their healthiest form in order to be able to appreciate them. If you're never sad, then one could argue you're never truly happy because you haven't experienced the counter uh, measure of what happiness is. There's also um, the importance of how we are wired as human beings, that sadness is not just 
something um, in your brain telling you something is wrong. Sad, sadness is quite often a coping mechanism for how we can, uh, I guess, get through life and how we can evolve and how we can, as a um, social um, creature, you know, derive empathy. So, yeah, you, I think you don't need to be sad to be happy, but I think sadness is a very important part of a whole picture of happiness. Okay. Um, I'll just sort of add one sort of thing here. Oh, question. James, um, what is the opposite of love? in your opinion. Mm. Now, the, the, so I'm, I'm going to have to cheat here because we've, all, we've talked about this at length before. So when you ask this question, the default answer is hate. Yeah, okay. So Where, I think people say that, but for me, it's indifference. Um, yeah. So it's, you, love is a strong emotional feeling. Indifference is no emotional feeling. Hate yeah. is a strong emotional feeling. Um, just to sort of play on what part of James was saying, for me, Sadness, uh, I think you're told, you know, don't feel bad emotions, only feel good emotions. Um, sadness helps you know what happiness is. If sadness is something that comes generally because you've cared about something. And so I don't want to have a life where I can't be sad. I want to have things I care deeply about. And that means they can hopefully make me very happy, but they can also make mm. me very sad. Mm. And, you know, you can't get one without the other. And it helps you figure out what your like north compass is and where you should spend your time. Um, so for me, emotional health is feeling all emotions, positive and negative, in a healthy fashion. So as an yep. example, healthy sadness is because something you cared about has made you sad and it helps you feel, realize, well, you did something wrong to make that person sad or what actually is needed to change in your business to stop that sadness from coming. And so mm. you take it as a signal, as information, and then you use it to learn how to hopefully live better and become wiser in the future. Um, so I don't know this, are you happy? I think you can't know that unless you have also been sad. That's yep. sort of my two cents. Yeah. Um, as I've, as I've uh, told Duncan before, I am happier than I've ever before. I've also been sadder than I have ever been before. I have been more energized, more elated, more enthusiastic, but I've also been more stressed and more burnt out and more exhausted. So, um, you can feel these extremes almost in parallel. So, you know, you might look back in your life at times when you were the happiest and you might on deeper inspection see that they were also times that you were your saddest. But what's important is that we look at the baseline as an overall, as an overall trend. You know, you're, it's, we're allowed to approximate because if we, if we don't, then we can't um, compare. So, the baseline for me, I feel like at least ever since I turned 18 has been consistently increasing year on year, year after year after year. Um, when you say baseline, you mean average? Because then there's yeah. a volatility around that average. Well, well then average, well, no, no, sorry, not average. Yeah. Um, baseline is your resting state. Oh, but that's what so, I would call average, like your average level happiness, but then you have volatility around that. Well, Yes, yes and no. I would okay. say that um, you know you can have days where you are just on cloud nine, not because you won the lottery or anything like that, but because of your mental state in that particular moment. Um, and you can have days where you're just over it, not because you're tired or because something bad happened. It's just because you might just be mentally burnt out. Hmm. Um, your resting state is when all other things are considered, um, what is your... Um, you know, 
what what are you basically as a person um, in terms of happiness? Are you mm. generally someone who is just grateful and you know wake up with a smile, or are you generally just someone who needs you know that coffee to make you happy, or to, who needs to you know take, talk to someone to give you a pick up, or um, yeah, or are you someone who just where do you default to? And... Like if you're not stimulating, yeah. like yeah. where do you default to? I, I like that concept. Okay, is there more you want to say on that? Um, the only other thing I wanted to do to help other people, so I really like your happy, sad um, uh, area of thinking. And so for anyone who wants to try and learn more about this, you really, in my mind, only need to watch one thing, and that's Pixar's Inside Out. <laughs> and for me, this was actually a, a, a significant uh, step in my uh, my journey of learning how important sadness is. So for anyone who has not seen Inside Out, um, there are characters based on uh, primary emotions. Uh, in this case, there's a character called happiness and there's a character called sadness. But there's also an imaginary friend called Bing Bong. And happy always wants things to be happy. Sad always wants to be sad. And Bing Bong is just someone who is a bit of a uh, crazy character. But there's a key moment in the movie where Bing Bong is sad. And happiness comes along and just tries to cheer him up and realize that she's failing. Where sadness does something that happiness cannot do or could not do in this moment, and that was to show empathy or even sympathy for this character. And by going through that process, by going through those emotions, he was able to healthily process these feelings of sadness. So that to me, and then on the back of that, he recovered he felt good again, and then one could say maybe with a greater sense of purpose or even happiness. So for me, um, the, the Duncan happy sad, I can apply to the bing bong principle. Um, I'm just going to second the watching inside out. Um, what it helped me understand and articulate is that there's like different forces pulling inside your mind. There's the part of you that wants to be happy. There's the part of you that wants to be sad and whatever else it is. And they're kind of sometimes in conflict. And so before that, I didn't sort of understand the different parts and I thought it was a really good articulation of this. I thought I'd just add one final point and then move on to the next question, which is this concept of positive sentiment override. Um, this was from Danny Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, and he puts the ratio at one. So for instance, if you're working for four hours in a job and three of those hours are good and one of those hours is bad, you'll have positive sentiment override for that one bad hour. You don't care about that bad hour. And if you're working eight hours a day, so six to two. Um, and so this means that you shouldn't expect every minute of everything to be good. But there's some ratio of good to bad where it actually means you don't care about the bad. And there's uh, somebody, I think it's Gottman, um, who's the relationship expert. And he thinks the relationship, uh, the ratio in relationships, i.e. romantic ones, is, mm -hmm. is five to one. So couples who have, I don't know, one to bad thing to five good things or above that, they work out. And if, but if it's one to one, you're like, I'm out. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's, you know, happiness is not as simple as you're, you're happy or you're sad um, or, or every, you know, interaction you have with somebody is positive or, or negative. Uh, it's much more gray than that. Yep. Do you want to move on to the next question, James? I started first. You can start first. Well, as happy as talking about happiness makes me, I think uh, in, the, in the interest of time, we should uh, keep going. Do you want, I, I'll talk first. Oh, sorry. Okay. Right. So the next question is, am I grateful? Um, I think this comes back to this baseline concept that James was talking about. If you look at the happiness research, there's a very interesting course called The Science of Happiness from Berkeley. Um, 
And they go into lots of stats on this. And they say that you can fundamentally move your baseline happiness. And one of the ways to do this is gratitude practice. Gratitude practice is, well, there's many versions of it, I'm sure, but the one that I've seen the most is writing down each day three different things that you're grateful for. And when I started doing this, I was like really bad at articulating things I was grateful for. <laughs> um, but then I've gotten much, much, much better. Um, and so, I don't know, this morning, it's coming up to Easter in Australia and there are these chocolate eggs, um, which I love. And so I was just saying, I'm really grateful for the chocolate eggs. And then this morning I had this meeting at work and I'm really looking forward to the meeting at work. And I'm also grateful for the fact that James and I started to have these conversations. Um, what it's done for me is that when I used to have a spare moment, let's say that I was walking down the street to get a coffee or something. And I used to then have a bit of spare brain time. My brain would go to, oh, what's the next thing I have to do for work? Or what frustrated me that morning, you know, this morning and what I need to do. But as I've been practicing gratitude, then when I've got a spare time, now I think, oh, wow, look at the sun shining through those leaves. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, isn't it great that someone said this this morning? So it's like literally rewired my brain. So like you're training your brain to think of things to be grateful for. Whereas I was wired more before to like think of things I had to do, what I did this afternoon or what, you know, what didn't go right that morning. And so it's fundamentally shifted my baseline to be happier. And I saw some stat, I don't know how they measure this, but they're saying that if you do 12 weeks of gratitude practice three times a day, that your baseline happiness moves up 25%. And so I would say that two years ago, I wasn't grateful um, because I wasn't spending any time being grateful. <laughs> um, whereas now I am, and it's shifted my baseline. Yeah, so um, it's interesting how interrelated great gratitude and happiness are. Um, and I think to your point, two years ago, even though you would not say you were all that grateful, you were probably still happy. Um, but by practicing gratitude, you can have a step shift change in your level of happiness. Uh, so for myself, um, I, I feel grateful every day. Um, but it's not because I do the daily exercise as uh, Duncan described, um, which is very, very powerful. And I highly recommend it to people who want to improve or increase their sense of gratitude. Um, and one of the reasons is this. I actually did try and do it uh, on a number of occasions, but one or two things would either happen. One of the things would be that I could not think of anything that I had not already felt during that day. Um, so, you know, I can, I can sit down and I can think of three things that I'm grateful for, uh, but I already, during the day, will have that interaction with that thing. So let's just say I am grateful for uh, having, a, um, you know, having time with my children at the end of the day. But when I'm in that moment at that time, that is what I'm feeling. So I don't want to try and go on too much of a tangent, but the, 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 the moment that I go through, I feel gratitude in all of them. And sometimes even when they're not actually good times. And that, to me, is something that I think is also valuable, that even though you're not necessarily happy at a certain moment, you still have something you can be grateful for. Yeah, I'll add one thing here. I sort of, one of my little equations is a good life is doing the right things and doing them right. What I've found is that you can do the right things and do them all wrong and, you know, you're not <laughs> going to get a good outcome. So it's doing the right things times doing them right. The busier I get, the less well I do things I find. And one example is that I'm far less grateful. 
and I'm far more frustrated. So if I am running at 200% utilization or something and there's stuff piling up all around me, then I am not looking for the things to be grateful for. I just get more frustrated. And so for me, being grateful is actually sort of goes in waves. And I found that even if there is 200% utilization, I can still be grateful. It's, it's kind of like a conscious choice for me to do. Whereas before I never spent any time thinking about it, then there was, I would be grateful when I had the time for it. And now I'm like, well, hang on. You can be grateful every day, all day. You know, not all day, but you know, there's no reason why you can't be grateful even if things are really busy. And that's kind of this been epiphany. I was like, you can choose to be grateful. You know, you don't mm. have to have something to be grateful for. You can choose to be grateful about something. And yeah. then practicing this has really, really helped me. Yeah. So gratitude is definitely a state of mind. Uh, you know, you can be happy as a base level instinct or as a feeling. You can't feel gratitude. You either are grateful or you're not. And I think that's quite um, a, a, you know, a powerful notion that simply by taking stock on, you know, where you are, the fact that you are here, you know, um, you are statistically an impossibility just by being alive here on earth today. Um, and even and coming to simple realization, no matter how much of a bad day you had, no matter how much you think you have lost or, um, you know, how much you think you are struggling, simple things as having running water and a roof over your head and food on your table means that you are better off than 90 plus percent, 99 percent of the entire population of this planet. So you, we really do have always have something to be grateful for. It's just whether you allow yourself to get caught up in whatever is happening to you right now and the supposed injustice of that, or if you can always maintain perspective. That's the word I was looking for, perspective. I think gratitude comes with giving perspective to your circumstances. So if you don't have perspective, you can't really be grateful because you don't know why you, um, you, know, you, you have that, um, that good fortune to be to, I guess, to be grateful. Does that make sense? Yeah, cool. Uh, I'll just sort of reiterate, I, I might push back slightly on what James said there. I think he's saying the same thing, but at the beginning it was a bit more uh, didactic. I think gratitude can come from external things, but it can also come internally. I used to think that, I don't know, if you've got a raise, you might be grateful or whatever. But I also realize now that I can give gratitude to myself and that I can give it to myself on every day or I could choose not to give it to myself. <laughs> and I didn't realize that I could. I kind of used to think, well, I have to have something good happen to be grateful rather than just saying, well, I'm going to choose to be grateful today. So this is whole baseline the idea that James talked about before. I think it is a core part of helping adjust your baseline. It's just you can rewire your automatic thought processes. Am I going to get frustrated here? Am I going to look at this in negative light? Or am I going to say, look, yeah, this wasn't good, but I'm frustrated because I care about this. Isn't it great that I care? Um, mm. And so just trying to sort of see that you can make the decisions around this, that you, you can, you know, affect how you feel. It's not just like external circumstances dictate internal mind space. The external circumstances happen, then you can choose how to respond to them, not just react to them. And so that's just been this huge breakthrough for me um, in recent times. Yeah. Right. Thanks for that, Duncan. Let's move uh, on to the next question. You want to start this one? All right. So question number three is, do I like my job? 
And I think this is an important question you sh- that one should ask themselves because primarily from your adult life onwards, your job is where you will be spending most of your time, if not asleep. So it's a very, very important question in the terms of, like, am I making good use of my time or the majority of my time while I'm away? So for me, yes, I do like my job. I like it very much. Should we say, are you comfortable saying what your job is? To give some context. Yes, no, I'm not happy. Yeah. So I am. I work for a company called The Iconic, which is a online fashion retailer. My role, which uh, doesn't really do much to describe what I actually do, but my role is called head of data product. So for anyone that would like any further clarity on that, think of a product owner or product manager who builds data and analytics instead of software. So if you do need further clarification than that, then you can email us on our link on the website. <laughs> Info at cloudstreet.com, yeah. Um, thank you, Duncan. Um, one of my major tenets is that time is very limited. We are, not, we are only here... Uh, well, sorry, Duncan may disagree with you. Uh, we can talk about uh, in another episode whether or not we can live forever. But... Uh, let's go with the prevailing wisdom that everybody uh, has a very limited time on this earth. And so, and Duncan will agree with this point, is time is your most precious resource because you don't get it back. So you're going to be spending a large chunk of your time at your job. And if you don't like what you do or, the, or your job in general, then you are only doing a disservice to yourself. Um, we, are, we live in a very, very, very fortunate time where we have the power and, the, um, and I believe, responsibility to choose our path so that we are at least enjoying the time that we are doing on, our, on this planet. Um, I should clarify, I really, really like my job, but I do not love it. And I think that will go into uh, one of the questions further down uh, when we start to talk about purpose and are we purposeful. So... Um, I can jump in here if you want, James. Yeah, because... All right. Uh, um, I think James's point, which he's sort of making there, is that you spend the majority of your waking hours if you work full-time working. Therefore, it's important to like what you do. Okay, if that's the case, what are some ways to liking what you do? Um, I used to think that you either had a passion and you could work in that passion and that you were really lucky <laughs> and that most people didn't have that many passions and if they did, they couldn't necessarily make a living out of it. Like They might be passionate about music but they're not going to be a rock star or whatever else it is that would be your vocation (laughs) and so i've since learned that this is there's another path to this um so i think that you can help make the world better and there you can work on doing this um so there's many ways to do that like you can look at education you can look at you know improving the environment you can look at healthcare. you can look at many many different things just helping one other person you know in i don't know reading to them or something and so you should have a job with me And one of the key ways for meaning is that you're helping others. And then I think when this happens, it leads you to become passionate. So if you're having meaning, then you sort of learn more about it and you become more interested. I'm a big believer that the more you know about something, the more interesting it is. So you may not start off necessarily. So I am co-founder of an education startup called Edrolo. um, And we build digital education resources for secondary schools. Um, We've got about 75 employees now. And at the beginning, you know, I went to school, but I didn't know that much about school. And 
if you had had me reading lots of education research, I would have had to like force myself to do it. Whereas now, like I love reading education research. It is some like life affirming thing. And I, anyone having like a light conversation, I'm like, show me the data, give me this the research piece. <laughs> so beautiful. And this has been a passion that's kind of grown. And the reason that I think it grows is that the root of this passion is improving education. I feel it's very unlikely for me to wake up tomorrow and be like, I don't think improving education is important anymore. <laughs> um, whereas in the past, I might've had a passion, for instance, about cars and I don't dislike them, but I'm pretty indifferent to them now. So do I like my job? Yes. Is it important to like your job? Yes. What's a way to do that? To work on helping making the world better. Then it's not so important to know what you're doing just to be helping with that. So my goal is that each year, the quantum of the improvement that I deliver goes up. Pause there. Yeah. yeah. So um, one of the things you said about uh, you enjoy things more, the more you know about them. I'll, I'll, I'll try and give one, um, uh, I guess, counter uh, point to that. In, I was listening to uh, one of my favorite podcasts this morning, Reed Hoffman, Masters of Scale. Uh, and he was talking to uh, a fellow who basically went from a media mogul to an internet mogul. But to not digress, his point is Barry that Dilly, he, yeah. Great episode. he thrives and he finds the greatest enjoyment in being in the areas where he is most ignorant. Um, and I guess you could say that's kind of uh, the, the job description of any entrepreneur going into a new space that they haven't fully, um, that, that hasn't been fully realized yet. So for this person, they thrived on that uncertainty of having a new area of opportunity or having a problem that nobody knows an answer to and then figuring that out. So I think, to be fair, the act of learning or being a, uh, an infinite learner, as Reid Hoffman has coined the term, um, can be something that makes you love what you do, irrespective of what it is that you are doing. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's many ways to have a good job, <laughs> not one. I was just trying to put forward that I think that finding, for instance, a way to help the world is part of it. Mm. Um, but uh, I'll give you an example. There's this wonderful Netflix um, documentary called Abstract. And in it, one of the episodes is on one of the shoe designers for Nike. I've forgotten his name, so I'm sorry about that. And I don't think we'll he wants... We'll put them to, in the show notes. Yeah, I don't think he wants to be the CEO or, you know, of Nike. He doesn't want to manage lots of people. He just wants to work on his craft of designing shoes better and mm. better and better. And he yeah. seems really, you know, in love with it. And so that's awesome. I think you don't necessarily need to want to be the CEO. You don't necessarily need to want to manage people. You, you know, there's many, many different things and different ways to do this. And so I think part of what James was saying is you can find this. Um, for me, I used to think, oh, the work matters. And I'm just sort of putting out from my point, it, the, what I'm actually doing from like, oh, I would like to be designing shoes or I'd like to be managing people is far less relevant than do I think I'm making a big impact on helping people. So that's kind of what my core motivator is. But there are many other motivators that other people have. Um, mm. you know, I, for instance, there's some really great food around here that I love. And there are what I would consider artisans that make, for instance, the sandwich I'm about to eat after this talk. And I love that they every day put love into their sandwiches. And mm -hmm. then I get to kind of eat that love in some respects. And is that saying that, I don't know, my job is better or worse than theirs? No, it takes all types. You know, a place for everything and everything in its place. So maybe we can go back to something you just said, Duncan, which was um, I, 
you don't have to necessarily love what you are doing, but um, if what you're doing um, is helping others, then you can love your job. Is that? Um, uh, I used to think right that word? one way to liking your job was to like, oh, I want to be, I don't know, managing people, or I want to be a data analyst, or I want to, you know, be a whatever else it is. And and now I'm less worried. I actually don't worry that much about what is I'm doing in the job. It's more about am I improving or helping people, and is this yeah. what I'm doing the best way for me to do that? Yeah. So I think that would be indicative of a good leader <laughs> to, be, to be thinking more so about um, are they heading in the right direction rather than are they filling up too much time of their day in meetings and other kinds of menial tasks or so to speak. But you know, not everybody's in a position where they can be thinking about how their work impacts either the wider organisation or people in general or, um, or communities or society in general in relation to liking their job. Like, so I, I just want to make sure I'm clear here that it's important that no matter what job you do, you see what impact that makes to the very least the organization you work for. If you're in a job and you can't see your role making impact, um, then either you're just happy um, not doing anything meaningful or then you need to try and find what that purpose is um, because that will help you, um, you know, enjoy your role a lot more if you can see the consequences of your action. Um, I just, but I jump in. Yeah. I, say, yeah. jump in. I just wanted to one counterpoint there. You know, we're talking from a very privileged perspective where we get to sort of think about some of these things. Other people Indeed. may, you know, not, and, and, you know, some people do need to earn money to support their family and the actual, you know, or others or just themselves, you know, the joy may come from the fact that they can provide to others and that they feel that they can do this. So there's many, many ways to have a good job. Um, yeah. I think ideally you would like it, um, but you can like it for different reasons. Like as we are talking about from the previous one, you can be grateful, you know, sometimes by choice and that yeah. can be ungrateful by choice. Um, and so in an ideal world, I think you would find a way to, that your job has meaning and makes a difference, but it could be that that meaning and difference comes from your ability to provide, for instance, to other people. Um, and there, there's lots of different good reasons um, that you hopefully could be motivated. Yeah. So, so that's actually a very good point, Duncan. Um, and that is that, you know, sometimes either by way of not having the opportunity or in, for example, my case, you could be at a particular stage in your life where the answer to this question is not as important as it would be at other times. So to, to, um, to give you my personal context, liking my job was very important to me 10 years ago, um, ten, between 10 years ago and I'll say three years ago, because that was my focus and I wanted to make sure that um, I was enjoying what I was doing uh, from a career perspective. However, since becoming a parent, although liking my job is still important, it's no longer the most important thing, or should I say as important to be fair, there are, there are still more things important than liking my job, even 10 years ago. Um, so you will be at different stages throughout your life where sometimes it might not be that important to you to have to like my job so long as it's providing a larger purpose or, you know, for example, of the, you know, the single parent who has to work so that they can provide for their children. If they're doing something that will give them that ability to provide and to give their children opportunity, then that might give them a lot more happiness 
than going off and finding a vocation at the expense of you know giving children fresh food and a good education. Cool. Um, I just thought I'd talk about the downsides of liking your job. <laughs> um, so we talked before, like, what is the opposite of love? It's indifference. It's, it's not, you know, I think hate and love are kind of cousins. And so if you really like your job, then the caring for it can also make you really unhappy. Whereas if you do not care about your job, then I think it's hard for your job to make you unhappy. You might find meaning for it. So you might feel a bit empty, but it's sort of different. And I know that, like, I care deeply about Ed Rollo and therefore its ability to make me, you know, sad or to, to hurt me is, is huge. Um, however, I sort of said this earlier, I don't want to live a life of where I don't have an ability to be sad. Taken to, you know, it's extreme, you become a monk and live in a monastery and you meditate all day. And, you know, you mightn't have stresses, um, but I want to be able to care about things deeply. I don't want them to hurt me deeply. And I think learning about how to do life well is figuring out how to care and not cry, is how to care and have, you know, avoid the pitfalls or the potholes in the road. Um, but mm. I do think that, for instance, for me anyway, the more I like a job, the more it is possibly able to frustrate me, but I wouldn't have it anyway. It's like saying, yeah. you know, I'd rather have loved and lost and never have loved at all in some respect. Yeah. So I think um, Ray Dalio said it best. Said it best. Um, by the way, Ray Dalio just happens to be my favorite quotable person at the moment. Um, <laughs> the key to life is to struggle well. Uh, so if, if, we, if we want to look at, um, you know, what it is that we, you know, how we can be the happiest or meet our highest potential over life, it is through growth and you own, well, you achieve growth through struggling. Uh, but there's good struggling and there's bad struggling. I think, James, so that's a, you said that in a very strong way. That is one way to live a good life. And then the question is how to live a good life. And if you look at Aristotle, I think he would say that part of that is that you're looking to learn and to grow. But I don't think yeah. that is necessarily how you need to live a good life. But that is definitely one interpretation. Good pick up, Duncan. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure monks in monasteries would disagree with yeah. that. As well. <laughs> um, but uh, to your point, I think if you struggle well, if you are doing things that are giving you, um, you know, uh, challenges, but those, ch but meeting those challenges um, give you an opportunity to grow and to um, to improve. I think that also comes with a great deal of satisfaction and increase of life happiness. Cool. Maybe we'll move on to the next question. We've, we've, there are 21 questions and we've done three in, I don't know how long we've been going for now, 45 minutes. Well done us. Um, <laughs> the next one is, do I feel good? Um, this is a sort of random question. I don't even actually understand what it means. Is this different to feeling happy? Um, I'm going to look at this from a different lens. Um, like something that I have realized is super important. And I think everyone else realized this. So welcome to some really uninsightful stuff is that if I sleep well, eat well and exercise well, everything else is 10 times easier. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like the foundation. So if I've had a bad night's sleep, everything is like a, such a massive struggle. And, and I found that they say that like, for instance, for people who get on scales every day and weigh themselves, typically there was a study done in the US, they lose something like five pounds over the next year. And for those that don't, they put on like eight pounds. And I'm, I'm sure those numbers are wrong, but they, one people got heavier and one people got lighter. Um, and I sort of was like, okay, well, why don't I just measure my sleep? And so I've got an aura ring and I use um, sleep cycle. And then I was like, I'm going to measure my exercise. I've got an Apple watch. Um, and so then I sort of try to eat healthy as well. Um, I actually do a bit of the MyFitnessPal. So yes, quantified self, that is me. Um, and I found that when I sort of write them down, it's much easier for me to go to bed at basically the same time to get hopefully, you know, a good amount of time in bed. 
And then I can also track like, why didn't I sleep well that night? Well, okay, I was stressed during the day. So do I feel good? I sort of look at it from those three things. And two years ago, I didn't consciously focus on them. I'd kind of go to bed when I felt like it. <laughs> um, and if I was like, you know, I want a chocolate, um, you know, so I'm having a chocolate. Exercise is one of the first things to get cut if I got busy. Um, and now those have become sort of mandatory things. And I found that the flow on effects or the, you know, the compound multiplier is massive. Those foundational things just make a huge difference to how I feel. Yep. So I think, Duncan, um, the way that you interpreted this is pretty spot on. And so to, to my view, it's basically a question around your health or your physiology. Um, so do I feel good could also be um, do, I, um, do I have a good level of energy? Am I, um, you know, am I vibrant? Am I lively? Do I feel fresh or am I tired, lethargic, bloated, uh, you know, cranky, terse? Um, so I do agree that do I feel good is important because if basically um, it's your body. You know, am I happy is your mind. And so, um, you know, as the popular saying goes, uh, healthy body, healthy mind. And so this is really just about am I doing the right thing to look after my body? Um, and, I, and I thought it was also a, a good side observation that, uh, this is to the point that you made last week, Duncan, which is feeling is different to being. Oh, mm -hmm. so uh, for me, do I feel good? Uh, yes. And I think it's because of making sure that I have a good balance over as many different aspects of my physiology as I can. So just as a precursor, being a young parent, and what I mean by young parent, I mean being parent to very young children, uh, you have a lot less control over your, um, uh, uh, your time, <laughs> uh, especially when it's uh, the late hours of the evening. They don't seem to prescribe to the same uh, doctrines of you go to bed and you stay asleep until the sun comes <laughs> in. Uh, sometimes they have different ideas. Um, but there's a lot that I am in control with, most uh, obvious being what I eat. And so... The example I really like to give here is that I no longer eat dairy. And it's not because, um, well, there are, there are multiple reasons, but the main reason people think that one stops eating dairy is either because um, of a, uh, like a moral stance on, um, you know, being a vegan, um, or the other one is to simply try and lose weight because they think dairy makes you fat. Um, I took it from a completely different perspective, and that is I came to the... By the way, when you turn 30 or when you're 30, James. your body is no longer invincible. It does actually respond to the crap that you put in it. Like when you're 20, you can consume anything and it doesn't matter. And I started... And I have a coffee every single day um, with milk in it. And I started realizing that made me feel bad. And as soon as I cut out milk and all of the other dairy products that I've been eating in my life, I have felt much, much better. Uh, and I think, Duncan, you've done something similar. Sure. Um, I, I, I'm not going to sort of dive down there. I'll talk about this concept of your tank, which James and I have been talking a bit about recently. Ooh, yeah, um, yeah. So why are you with your tank? Are your tank full, tank empty? And what activities add fuel to your tank and what activities take fuel from your tank? 
I think you should try to understand where you are in your tank. I'm a very different person when my tank is empty to when my tank is full. If my tank is empty and something tank, you know, fuel taking out happens, it's different people, some people become emotional. I become very short and, um, uh, you know, terse. <laughs> um, if, if the same thing happens when my tank is full, I'm a supportive, happy person. And so feeling good to me is partially recognizing where you are with your tank. And so for instance, if your tank empty, and this happens from time to time, um, then you should treat yourself differently. You might have standards that you hold yourself to, but those standards need to change if your tank is empty, because otherwise you might burn out or break. And so learning to actually figure out where your tank is and then respond mm. to that is great. And learning what activities add fuel to your tank yep. is really yep. important. So an example for me is I used to try to work as much as humanly possible. And now I have what I call Duncan Day, which is Saturday, which is doing nothing. It's relaxation. I did not used to think there was a purpose to relaxation. I thought it was a waste of time where I could be working. But now I believe that relaxing helps you work better. You get more done by doing less hours. And yep. it's a massive tank filler. Um, work can be tank filling for me. Um, but if I work 100% of the time, it isn't necessarily. And so do I feel good is partially where I am in my tank and, and, and managing my tank. Yeah, I think that's a very, very um, relevant point to this question. Um, and it's, it's very true what you say, because you can be doing all the right things, but if you're not stopping to take care of yourself or to fill your love tank, then it won't matter how well you eat or how much you sleep. Um, your, your mindset will take a significant blow to that. Um, perspective, and I think this is relevant to a lot of people, is that in this day and age, you're very time poor and you can't find the time to stop and look after yourself or to stop and just have downtime or stop and have me time. Um, I think that there is always, always, always an ability for you to prioritize things over others. So if you think that you don't have time to look after yourself or to do something for yourself to fill your love tank, try and look at it from a different perspective and think about what am I prioritizing right now? So if you have, you know, you have children that you have to care for or um, in, in Duncan's case, a child that he needs to work on uh, during work hours and after work hours, then you can figure out where it is that you can make um, the difference between what is better for my children and my partner and my job is that I look after myself. And that suddenly switches um, your perspective on what you should be prioritizing. Cool. Um, one other thing I'll sort of say is that be wary of other people's tanks um, is really important. Um, so if someone you know's tank is empty, try mm. to help fill it up for them. And actually mm. filling other people's tanks up can fill your own tank up. Uh, mm. After a point, if you're a crutch for somebody indefinitely, then you might be just draining. <laughs> so I feel that there's sort of like some percentage of where helping them helps you and then it gets to a point where it becomes negative and then people have got to think about you know, where this sits. Yeah. Maybe we move on to the next question, which is, do I spend enough time on my education? Um, I'm going to just call this learning. <laughs> um, not like, I don't know, getting a degree or something. In fact, I only really think that I started learning once I finished formal education. Um, I got pieces of paper, but I don't think that they were necessarily really useful for me. Um, so I think of there sort of being three types of time, work, personal growth, relaxing. I'm sure there's more, but that's just one way to break things down. And there's people um, like Michael Simmons from The Mission that call this compounding time. 
I've found that if you take time for personal growth, it feels like you're taking away from like, I don't know, work or from relaxing and you don't get a tangible win at the end of it that week. Whereas if you spent the time of work, you did anyway, it pays back. It might take six months. It might take six years, but it pays back immeasurably. And so mm-hmm. I found that it's really high ROI over the long term and I plan to live a long time. And so I found that investing in this is, is a hugely good use of time. And that if you only, like, I'm too busy, I've got to do this and do right now, you don't, you know, you, in a year from today, you won't have grown. And so I spend 20 hours a week on this. So a huge amount of time. Uh, and <laughs> I actually want to spend more. So, yeah. So I think you've, um, you've answered the question very well. So the first uh, like first of all, I think self-directed learning is very, very important. But the question uh, doesn't really help when I said, do I spend enough time on my education? Um, I don't think enough is ever enough. But am I, am I learning? Am, like, am I doing something to, to grow my, um, I guess, my intellectual capital or my, um, you know, where I am today? I think there are more than one way to learn. People learn differently. Some people read, some people like to um, listen to podcasts. Some people can only learn by doing or by with their hands. Um, so the key question here is to figure out what is learning, what, how do you learn well? Uh, because it shouldn't just be uh, setting aside 10 hours a week for me to dedicate to learning. I think the first step should be figuring out how it is that you learn. And I think it goes back to the point you made earlier, Duncan, about school and how, you know, you didn't particularly enjoy it. I don't think any of us particularly enjoyed I'm sure there the are people, school. but for a lot of us, yeah, it wasn't so um, great. And I think that's disheartening for a lot of people because then they associate school education with learning, which is bad. But if you can flip it on its head and think about, well, what have I learned that I enjoyed the process of doing that exercise? you can then start to actually love to learn. And um, I think that's, that's something a lot of people lose by going through the, the standard education system. That's a really good point. Learning with a purpose, i.e. you can take that learning and then help others as an example, is mm. truly invigorating to me. Learning without a purpose, which is unfortunately how I describe, for instance, most of my university degree, I was <laughs> really unmotivating. Um, and so learning done You did well, get to build a go-kart. <laughs> Is really good. Um, we've been going for, I think, a bit of an hour, so maybe we'll wrap, recap this. I think sort of part of the beginning is like asking yourself questions or just going through these 21 questions from Darius Faro, um, I think will hopefully help you learn things about yourself. I personally uh, write sort of a yearly plan and a yearly recap, and in that I've got like goals and other things, but I also have some questions that I ask myself each year and I kind of continually add to the list. And it's really fun to go back and look at these things. Um, I think he says he asks himself that the right of this blog every month. Um, so perhaps that's, you know, one thing you should do. But for me, yeah, asking yourself questions is a great way to actually learn more about yourself rather than just mm-hmm. doing, uh, you know, asking yourself questions. And so, yeah, I would suggest having a look at this article and some other things um, and hopefully doing it on a regular basis. Yeah. So just for me to summarize, um, I really liked um, the approach this author took in terms of, um, you know, focus on the question first. And what I mean by that is not look at the question being asked and go, hmm, I'm thinking about the question. It's about asking the right question because the way, the, the questions you ask frame the way you view the world. Um, and it couldn't be better uh, 
given a better example than, you know, am I grateful? Like, do I practice gratitude? Just by thinking about that question gives you a whole new perspective on what it is that you can be doing to increase your levels of happiness, your levels of uh, service to others, and then, you know, ultimate things, things like purpose. Um, I think every, you know, it, it helps to have these questions, um, you know, in your mind, but also to revisit them time over time over time again, because when you start asking questions, you start asking other questions, and that adds to your level of awareness. So I think this has been a really fun exercise. I had no idea it would take this long to just go through what five questions. <laughs> uh, we might need to extend this out to another one or possibly several episodes, depending on um, you know, what kind of feedback we get. But um, this has been really fun and it's been a good learning exercise, not just about the other person, being in this case you, Duncan, but about myself. Yeah. So really enjoyed it. Same here. Um, Thanks for chat. Um, I'll speak to you soon, James. All right. Speak to you next week. Bye.